We have the privilege of hearing three beautiful stories from the time of Jesus this morning. I have the opportunity to share from Mark 4, 35 through 41, where Jesus calms the storm. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, 
if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of our Lord. On first Wednesday, we begin a series um, from Isaiah 9, actually. And in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 9, Isaiah uh, gives a prediction, a prophecy about Jesus. And in that prophecy, he says that Jesus is going to come. This is 700 years before Jesus is actually born. And he says Jesus is going to come. And when he does, he will be called four names. It is that passage made famous by Handel's Messiah. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In our first Wednesday service, Caleb preached on the Wonderful Counselor, and this morning it is my privilege to uh, introduce you to, perhaps for the first time, or to reacquaint you with the mighty God, Jesus, mighty God. Um, when I went to prepare this sermon, I only intended to preach on the passage of the calming of the sea. So I read it, I did the homework on it, I went then to commentaries, which is what I do, and I grabbed those commentaries, and as I started to read, I discovered that that story, uh, that account of Jesus in that troubled sea sets up the accounts that follow. 
and that it is best to take them all into consideration together, and that's why we looked at all these passages in the reading of Scripture this morning. Let's go to what happened. Jesus is teaching. He pushes out into a boat. He teaches from the boat, and then uh, he leaves, and his disciples are with him in a boat. And uh, a storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. I've been out on the Sea of Galilee. It is surrounded by mountains, and it's really not a sea. It's a lake. It's small. It's surrounded by mountains, and the wind can just come down those mountains and whip up that water quickly, and that must have been what happened. And when it did, a storm came so fiercely that it made Peter afraid, and Peter's lived his life in a boat. It terrified uh, seasoned fishermen, and so uh, Jesus, on the other hand, is asleep. And uh, they wake him, and they ask him a question, do you not care that we're dying? Seems to be a bold question of Jesus, and he wakes up and he calms the sea with two words in the Greek, calms the sea, and he said to them, verse 40 of Mark 4, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Who then is this? Uh, Jesus is about to answer the disciples' question of who then is this, and he won't do it by teaching, he'll do it by showing. Uh, The other accounts are the answer uh, to that question, but it is from this conversation that the three Uh, truths of the sermon, which are all questions, uh, hang. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Those are Jesus' questions to you this morning and to his disciples in the boat. And then your question back to him has to be, well, who then is this? Why are you so afraid? It's important to note that Jesus doesn't say, why are you afraid? Why are you so afraid is the question. Why? Uh, Water filling your boat should scare you. A hot stove should scare a little child. Cars going fast are scary. Jesus doesn't deny the existence of rational fear. Not at all. And some of you this morning are in scary situations. A cancer diagnosis is scary. A a, a potential divorce is scary. A wandering child from the faith is scary. Jesus is not saying, pretend there's nothing to be afraid of. No, it it isn't a blind or foolish enthusiasm. 
The question isn't why are you afraid, it is why are you so afraid? He doesn't call them out for being afraid, he calls them out for being so afraid. They're so afraid is evidenced by their question. Jesus, do you not care that we're dying? Don't you care? Jesus speaks The wind calms, which means the waves stop, and they get to the other side safely. When they get there, they're encountered not by a crowd, but by a crowd. He's a man, but he's also a crowd. He's one, but he's inhabited by thousands. We never hear his name. He is most likely naked. He is possessed with demons. They have driven him to do crazy things. So much so that the people of Jerasa, the Gerasenes, have bound him with chains and with shackles and relegated him to the place of the tombs, which would have been about two miles out of town. He's not the grand marshal at the Christmas parade, in other words. Not at all. He is the nuisance. He's the one, when he comes into town, that parents pull their kids back and hide their children from uh, so they don't see his uh, naked, bleeding body. At night, he can be heard on the hillsides screaming out, He cuts himself. But when he sees Jesus, he runs to him. And when he does, Jesus immediately begins to address the problem, demons in him. Jesus immediately begins to cast out the demons. But the demons talk. It's hard to know when the man and the demons are talking in the account Uh, But we know they talk and they say, I adjure you to Jesus. What's interesting is that little word adjure is is used uh, of, of an exorcist to speak to a demon to get that demon out. Not of a demon to speak to the exorcist, but here the roles reverse and the demons talk to Jesus as if they are in charge. When they do, uh, they immediately then nosedive into begging. They beg Jesus not to send them out of the area. That's interesting. I've yet to figure out why. Why did they want to stay in the area of the Gerasenes In a separate study, it would be telling to look into demons and to discover perhaps that they like certain places and certain people, that they are at home making someone's life miserable, and so they don't want to be removed from that person or that place. Uh, They beg Jesus to cast them into the pigs, 
Again, no idea why. Jesus grants their request. They go into the pigs. The pigs go running toward uh, the Sea of Galilee. They, they fall to their death in the Sea of Galilee. This is quite a turn of events. In verse 14 and 15 of Mark 5, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. That's how he identified himself when Jesus asked his name, Legion. The word legion uh, refers to at least uh, five or 6,000 Roman soldiers. Uh, we know that there were at least 2,000-ish demons because 2,000-ish pigs went running into the sea. But they find this demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were what? Afraid. Now we see fear twice. We see disciples afraid of a storm, and we see the townspeople afraid of a man who can cast demons out of their worst citizen. You would think, wouldn't you, that they would embrace this man, that they would want this Jesus, that they would uh, take him into the Decapolis. The Decapolis, I've been there too, is uh, a region of 10 Greek cities. They were built to mimic uh, large Greek cities like Athens. They have large arenas you would think that the leader of Jerasa, one of the 10 cities of the Decapolis, would say, would you join us? We have a large arena. We see what you've done for this man who was screaming. We've hidden our children from him for years. He was screaming in the tombs. He was cutting himself. You, we see what you've done for him. We'd like to bring you into the arena. Give a talk. Do something. Uh, you could do a lot. No, they look at him and they're afraid. It, it's, it's an unbelievable response. It probably shows that they value 2,000 pigs over one man. And they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Demons are afraid. The townspeople are afraid. The de demoniac, <laughs> he's not. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might go with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Uh, don't, don't just skip over that sentence. Go home to your who? Your friends. Uh, who? Who would be his friends? Who would be this man's friends? Evidently, before the demons moved in, this man had friends. Go home to your friends 
and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus said, I'm not going into that arena. You are. I'm not going to the Decapolis. You are. You've got a story to tell. Go tell it. And then Jesus got into the boat and went back to the other side of the sea. I don't want to read too much into this, but it appears that the reason Jesus went across the sea may be two things. One, to show the disciples his power over nature. And two, to heal, exercise a demon-possessed man and show the disciples his power over demons. Why? Because he goes and just goes right back. Is it possible that the storm you're in is on purpose? Is it possible that the boat you're in being wrecked by waves is God bringing you to a place where you'll cry out to him? Is it possible that what you are navigating is Jesus saying, I just want you to see this. You see what precedes all of what we have here is teaching. Think Sermon on the Mount. Think that most famous sermon, but what is happening here is the internship. Uh, this is where a teacher has been in training at college and then lands in a classroom with another teacher to try out what she or he has been studying. This is the real deal. Life is that. So he goes back across the Sea of Galilee, and when he does, there's a crowd again the city isn't named where he lands, but there's a crowd again, and uh, they come up to him, and there's a man named Jairus. Uh, Jairus is a respectable guy. He's the synagogue ruler or leader. The synagogue was the uh, community center of the day. It's where kids went to school. It's where uh, families went to worship. It's where town council had their, held their meetings. Every uh, small town, every area had a synagogue. It was the gathering place. The ruler of it was a well-known person always. So Jairus is a well-known man, and he comes to Jesus, and he asks him a question. Would you come, uh, my daughter is near death. We learn later she's 12 years old. She's dying. Yeah, Jesus says he'll go. And so he goes with entourage. I'm assuming that the crowds follow because, oh my goodness, this is Jairus and this is Jesus and Jairus is well known and so uh, we're going to go see this. They probably know the daughter in this community and 
didn't know perhaps she was near death. They want to go see something happen. They're on their way. There's a massive crowd headed toward Jairus' home, which would have been quite nice. He would have been the better paid, one of the better paid people in the community. And so they're heading that way when all of a sudden Jesus stops. And he says, who touched me? The disciples are, what? Like, why, why would you ask such a question? Jesus says, who touched me? One of the disciples says, oh, Master, there, there's so many people around you, and you ask who touched you? He said, yes. Power left my body. Oh. Cowering had to be in the crowd is a woman. She's been sick for 12 years, hemorrhaging. She had to be pale, anemic, weak. She's gone to every doctor, Mark writes, none helped. And she spent everything she had with the doctors. She's broke. She's sick. She's at the end. But she hears Jesus is coming and she does something she never should have done. You see, she's also unclean. Anybody who hemorrhages is unclean, unable to be touched, unable to touch. For 12 years, she hasn't attended synagogue. For 12 years, she's not gone to the community meetings. For 12 years, she's not been in a crowd. For 12 years, she's been quarantined. 12 years. And she works her way through and comes up behind Jesus and just grabs one last desperate attempt. Jesus' robe. And according to Mark, when she does, she knows immediately she's healed. Evidently, she's bleeding in the moment because her bleeding stops immediately. And Jesus turns. She's found out. Before we get to her response, we cannot miss this. that Jesus in that moment took on her weakness. That when he healed her, power left his body. You see, I'm preaching to people in the room and online who have a pretty good intellectual grasp of Jesus, 
but I'm afraid you may have forgotten that what you feel he does too. That what hurts you hurts him. And that in that moment, when she grabbed his robe, there was an exchange of weakness and strength. I love that, Jesus. So she throws herself at his feet and tells him the whole truth. And he sends her on her way. And he says, daughter, He calls her what? Daughter. That's amazing. She's had no one for 12 years. And he calls her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he's interacting with her, Jairus's folks come and say, Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. That leads to the second question, have you still no faith? Jesus didn't ask them if they had no faith. He said, have you still no faith to his disciples? Meaning, if you look back through your life and see everything God has done, or disciples, you've been with me now for a bit and you've seen some things. Have you still no faith? When they're in the boat, um, back to Jairus, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not, what? Fear. Fear a third time. Do not fear, only believe. In other words, faith has to supplant your fear. Do, do not fear, only believe. I love the humanness of all of this. Jesus overhears the servants and he turns, having healed the woman, and he turns to them and says, do not fear. Fear what? Death. Jesus has shown that he's mighty God over nature. He's shown that he's mighty God over demons. He's shown that he's mighty God over disease. He's about to show that he's mighty God over death. But the greatest fear, I think the greatest grief is a parent who loses a child. I think that just the greatest grief is that. This week I did two funerals and in one of those, a mom sat there and wept as her son older died. I rode into that cemetery in that procession 
with that family. And it happens to be the cemetery where one of the youngest people in our church ever to die is buried. And when I pulled in, my heart just dropped. And it was like all over again, I felt the pain that I felt that day when we rolled into that cemetery with that mother and that father and those two sisters and we buried that young man. The loss of a child is an awful grief. So they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Well, that she had just died, but what you did in those days was to hire mourners. They were hired help. You, you had a minimum. There was a formula for this. One or two had to play a flute, and the others had to clap their hands and wail loudly. And when he, Jesus, entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Uh, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. What? They're hired mourners. Well, they're not sad. They're getting paid. Uh, they can turn their mourning to laughter just like that. And so they did. They laughed at him. And Jesus kicked them out. I love that little detail. I don't know how he did it, but he kicked them out. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John. Those three closer friends of Jesus were going to witness something. And he went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said two words. I love both the, the story of Scripture, but I love also the artistry of it. When Jesus looked at the sea, he said, how many words? Two words. We're now at the bookend, and he says, how many words? Two words. He doesn't need a long speech. He doesn't have to go. He doesn't need to Benny Hinn anything. Nope. No fanfare. As a matter of fact, Benny Hinn tries to draw a crowd, right? Let's get a bunch of people around and see this. Jesus gets rid of the crowd. Don't know if you realize that, but he does that. And he says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I love that detail. We don't have time to get into why no one should know. There's a reason for that. But all of this begs the question, who then is this? Who then is this? I will say to you, church, as I saw your hands go up last week, so many of you being tested right now, that if you walk with God long enough, you'll be in the boat. Jesus will appear to be asleep and not care. And you may say the words out loud. If not, you may think them. Jesus, don't you care? Uh, Jesus, don't you care? Do you not care? Jesus may look at you and say, have you still? Why are you so afraid? 
Have you still no faith? And Jesus will step in and do in such a way, if you walk with him long enough, that you will look at him and go, who then is this? Who then is this? What they did not yet understand was that Jesus was the God-man. He was the God-man. He was so much man that he fell asleep in the boat, and so much God that he simply spoke and calmed the seas with two words. He was so much man that he asked the demoniac his name. And he was so much God that when legion, meaning thousands, spoke to him, they fell at his feet in fear. Jesus was the God-man. He was so much man that he felt power go out of his body when he encountered the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And he was so much God that her simply touching his clothes healed her immediately. He was so much man that he cared that Jairus' daughter had a bite to eat. Uh, And so much God that he simply spoke two words and raised her from the dead. I could stop there, but I won't. He was so much man that he paid his taxes. And he was so much God that he told Peter to go catch a fish. And in that fish's mouth would be the money to pay his taxes. He was so much man that he got hungry when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And he was so much God that he encountered a little boy with just a little bit of lunch. And he fed 5,000 men plus the women and the children with that lunch. He was so much man that he wept at the tomb where Lazarus was dead. But he was so much God that he stepped into that tomb, said Lazarus' name, and Lazarus came out of that grave. Amen? He was the God-man, the mighty God. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came, said his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. I ask you, like that old black preacher, I wonder, do you know him? I wonder, do you know that Jesus I'll share with you a few words from a book I'm reading. It's another book by Dane Ortland, who wrote Gentle and Lowly. It's called Deeper. He writes, some of us look at the evidence of our lives, mindful of the pain we've endured, and we do not know how to respond except with cold cynicism. The love of Christ, we wonder, is this a joke? You're living in la-la land, Dane. This all sounds nice in theory, but look at the wreckage of my life. I know deep down in my bones I was created to be a palace, magnificent and stately, but I'm a pile of bombed-out rubble given the way others have treated me, wronged me, victimized me. My life disproves the love of Christ. If you're having thoughts like that as you hear of Christ's love, I want you to know that you're looking at the wrong life. Your life doesn't disprove Christ's love. His life proves it. In heaven, the eternal Son of God was palatial magnificence, if anything ever was. But he became a man, and instead of ruling in glorious authority, as one would expect God become man, he was rejected and killed. 
His own life was reduced to bombed out rubble. Why? So that he could sweep sinful you into his deepest heart and never let you go. Having satisfied the Father's righteous righteous wrath toward you in his atoning death. Your suffering does not define you. His does. You have endured pain involuntarily. He has endured pain voluntarily for you. Your pain is meant to push you to flee to him where he endured what you deserve. If Jesus himself was willing to journey down into the suffering of hell, you can bank everything on his love as you journey through your own suffering on your way up to heaven. For others of you, It isn't so much what you have received at the hands of others, but your own sin and folly that cause you to doubt God's love. You are a follower of Jesus, and you keep messing up. You wonder where the reservoir of divine love is going to run dry. Here's what I say to you. Do you realize how God treats his children who mistreat his love? He loves them all the fiercer. Let him love you all over again. Pick yourself up off the ground. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. And allow his heart to plunge you into his oceanic love more deeply than he ever has before. Mighty the man, Jesus. Let's talk to him. Lord Jesus, you who were enthroned in magnificence in heaven Did you look at that naked, demon-possessed man and think, I'll be naked on a cross? They'll cut my body too. I'll be mocked. I'll be outside the city too. Did you? Jesus, did you? I'm just wondering. Jesus, I I confess that I forget you. I tend to remember what you've done for me in an intellectual sense, but I forget you. I want to reaffirm this morning 
that I'd rather be in a boat sinking with water and you in it than sailing the high seas without you. I would. 38 years now, you've walked with me. Jesus, you've seen me at my worst because of the worst things I've ever done, I did after that. You've also seen me at my best because the best things I've ever done, I did after that. I've never known a love like yours. Lord, I want these people to feel their faith. I really do. But I also want them to have faith. Me too, when we don't feel it. I really do. Thank you, Jesus, for being the real deal. We're doing for me what no one else has, nor could, nor will ever be able to do. And one day, I'll see you. And when I do, I too will bow at your feet in awe. And all earthly desires and accomplishments will seem so unimportant at that moment. One look in your eyes, one glance at nail-scarred wrists, at wounded feet. I think that'll be enough. Thank you. Love you, Jesus. And all God's people say, When Jesus finished this, these three, four events, he sent the disciples out, two by two. Isn't that interesting? They went through the test, then they went out. This week as you go, he goes with you. He is in you, you're in him. Uh, just be reminded, there's somebody else who desperately needs to hear this story. Next Sunday is Everlasting Father. There's somebody who needs that. And invite them to join you. Caleb is going to close us.